The idea they just had a big fan base, yeah, that was part of it, but there was something else going on. And so I used this as an opportunity to get inside the black box, to really try and figure out how did this band, The Beatles, and its relationship with EMI Records and Parlophone Records in, in the UK and Abbey Road Studio really create this phenomenal record that changed everything. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of an Acton Line episode from September 22nd, 2021. The Beatles are considered the most influential popular music act of the 20th century, widely recognized for their influence on popular culture. The inability of other bands and artists to imitate their fame has prompted questions such as, how did the Beatles become so successful? What factors contributed to their success? And why did they break up? Can economics and the economic way of thinking help answer these questions? In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Samuel Staley to discuss his book, The Beatles and Economics, Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and the Making of a Cultural Revolution. Staley is director of the DeVoe L. Moore Center in the College of Social Sciences and Public Policy at Florida State University and an author and award-winning novelist. He earned a BA in economics and public policy from Colby College, an MS in social and applied economics from Wright State University, and a PhD in public administration with concentrations in urban planning and public finance from Ohio State University. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Samuel Staley is director of the DeVoe L. Moore Center in the College of Social Sciences and Public Policy at Florida State University, where he teaches economics and social entrepreneurship. Prior to joining Florida State, Dr. Staley was the Robert W. Galvin Fellow at Reason Foundation in Los Angeles, where he worked on issues such as transportation system management and performance, public-private partnerships, growth management, and regulatory reform. He's the author of several books, including The Beatles and Economics, published in March 2020, which we'll be discussing today. Sam Staley, welcome to Acton Line. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a great opportunity, and we're talking about one of my favorite subjects. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm very excited about this because I, uh, I have a music background myself. Um, I studied music in college. Uh, I've played in contemporary groups, and anybody who plays, I play drums, uh, percussion, mm -hmm. and anybody who's done that has, uh, certainly knows Ringo Starr uh, and knows the influence that he had on the drumming world. And I know we think about the Beatles so clearly that even for people who, in the music world, even if you're not a huge fan of of the Beatles music, you recognize the importance of what they did and how they did it in a music sense to what informs music today. But to the point of your book, we don't think about it from the economics business side as, uh, as much. So just to start off with a generalist of question, 
what influence did the Beatles have on the music industry and business, and how do we should we understand them through an economic lens? Oh, so you threw me a softball. Um, I thought you were going to start out with the hardball question, which is, tell me more about Ringo Starr's role in the band. Hopefully, we do get to that, because Ringo has a huge role. And I'll get to which um, which is your favorite Beatle at the end. So we will yeah, get Well, there. actually, okay. The, uh, and I've got an answer for that too. But anyway, you know, it's, it's interesting because I am a musician, um, very amateur. So in other words, I've only been in a, had a couple performances in a band back in high school. And, and uh, so, and then pretty much just bang around with my guitar on my own. Um, and I listen to music, but I would not consider myself a Beatles fan. In other words, I, well, I, I, Growing up in the 70s, you had the stack of albums and many of them would include Beatles um, albums because they were huge. But I was a consumer of the music, not really thinking too much about it. And the bottom line is, as I began to do the research and began to think about what would become this book, we just have no idea how influential this band is. Even though we talk a lot about it and a lot of people have talked about it. From an economic perspective, no one has really, really, in my view, had really considered how big of an impact this band had. And even as someone who doesn't consider himself as a Beatles fan, per se, um, once I put it all together and I began investigating it, I spent two and a half years researching the book and the Beatles and listening to a lot of Beatles music and a lot of reading a lot of stuff. I don't think I fully understood it until I was writing the book itself. Um, It changed everything. I mean, it is, as a matter of fact, it changed things so much that I had to get into it and figure out why. It is because there's, it's not a straight line trajectory. We're not talking about a couple of kids who just made it big. It wasn't just a small band that made it big, which is a famous line from Paul Lennon, but also uh, Paul McCartney has said it in interviews as well. There's something much more going on. And frankly, it was a phenomenon bigger than the four four people themselves that were part of the band. And I wanted to investigate that because I didn't feel that all any of the explanations were really adequate to explain it. It is um, sort of like what Elon Musk is doing with technology at the time in the the 60s. And it changed the course of pop music forever in a lot of ways and very subtle ways, but as well as big ways. What what was it that piqued your interest that gave you the idea for exploring the Beatles through this economic lens? Yeah, it's it's interesting because at the time, I I live in Tallahassee, Florida. I'm at Florida State University at the main campus. And my brother at the time was living in Nashville. He's been in the music business for a long time, um, both as a musician as well as a a business manager. And so I was driving up to Nashville to visit him uh, at what turned out to be the 50th anniversary of the release of the Sgt. Pepper album. Also turns out, as I was going around Sirius XM Radio, I discovered the Beatles channel and I said, well, I'm just going to listen to this on my way up to Nashville. I had seven hours to sort of listen to everything. And as they started, the DJs and the others started marching through the importance of this album, it dawned on me as someone who studies entrepreneurship and studies innovation, this was extraordinary. This is not something that you just put into an economic model and out pops a revolution. There was something else going on here. And the and, and a couple of things really struck out. I mean, one, the amount of time and resources put into this one album was off the charts for the 1960s. That, that was one thing. In other words, we're not talking about just 
doubling the amount of time that goes into the album, creating this kind of album. We're talking about exponential increases in resources. But the other important part of it, which is where I really started thinking about the lens, because the first part really could be explained through just pure creativity. Yeah, we put a lot of time into the album because it was really artistic and it was going to blow blow the world up. And we just are artists and are committed. And that, frankly, is the common narrative. These are just the, the four Beatles are actually usually John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Um, George Harrison gets the, a bit of a short shrift in this and Ringo is largely ignored, unfortunately. Um, but it's just these are incredible artists and they're just putting all this time in the studio. No one really asked why was a for-profit company allowing them to have carte blanche in a studio in tying up those resources in London at that particular time? Because we're not talking about just a few hours. We're talking about Score, I mean, do, I mean, hundreds of hours in editing and recording time that there was no real financial accountability and no one knew what was going to come out of this. And so that really prompted it. I said, OK, we need an explanation for this. And the artistic narrative doesn't work. Um, the media thing doesn't work. The idea they just had a big fan base. Yeah, that was part of it, but there was something else going on. And so I use this as an opportunity to get inside the black box, to really try and figure out how did this band, the Beatles, and its relationship with EMI Records and Parlophone Records in, in the UK and Abbey Road Studio really create this phenomenal record that changed everything. But then, of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg because that was huge. But then you start looking at all the contributions from the very beginning of their career to the very end, including Let It Be album, which was recorded earlier, but more likely the Abbey Road album. And you just begin realizing this is a juggernaut of creativity and commercial success. And it is, and no one's really been able to replicate it since. So that's a bit of a long-winded way to get to it. But for me, it was, in fact, this journey that started listening and saying to the 50th anniversary of the Sgt. Pepper album and all these tributes and thinking, this needs to be explained. Mm-hmm. Someone has to dive into this and really begin to, to really figure out what was going on. And frankly, I found that no one had really looked at the Beatles as an entrepreneurial enterprise. They've looked at it as a creative enterprise in an artistic enterprise and as a commercial success, but not as an entrepreneurial enterprise. And that's what I did. And that's what the book really does dive into. What are the, to you, the biggest takeaways from that entrepreneurial perspective that we may not think about in terms of the Beatles success, but in, in what you've discovered are so clearly there? Yeah, I think um, there are a couple things. I mean, actually, it's, it's, I have this long list of things that I discovered. Of course, some of it is just being a, a music music fan and just sort of saying, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, but I'd say there are a couple of things. One of the most important things was that the Beatles had to be those four Beatles. It, it, I'm not sure it could have happened. As a matter of fact, we know, looking at the history of the band, that there were other people that were part of the band, the Beatles, and it didn't take off. But it was, frankly, when Ringo Starr completed the Beatles. That's when they began to have the foundation they needed that would lead to a Sgt. Pepper-type album and lead, and it started earlier than that as well. Um, so I think it had to be the four. And importantly, and this is really underestimated, all four made major contributions. All four of them were important for this team. It was a team. 
And while certainly Lennon and, and uh, McCartney get the credit mainly as songwriters, and they were clearly, I mean, their artistic expression, I, you can't take away from them at all. I honestly don't think the Beatles would be there if it also weren't for Ringo Starr and George Harrison. Paul McCartney has said as much. It's not paying homage to just his, uh, his mates in the band. I think there's a real substance to it. And I think bringing that entrepreneurship lens, and I, I teach social entrepreneurship at Florida State. And so we're looking at teams and how you build them, how you interact, how do you create that creativity you need to really push the envelope. And I think that's part of it. So that's the biggest takeaway is that this act actually was an entrepreneurial team and it was a big band. It was a band. I think the other part of it is um, there are a couple things, but I would say Another element is really understanding their journey. It wasn't just uh, their journey. And in one of the chapters, I start in Liverpool. My, my analysis of the band doesn't start when they're on the road or when they're in Hamburg during the residencies. I think the music environment in Liverpool was absolutely crucial to the band's formation, success, and how they developed their identity. There was this... Um, this sort of a, a, a unique British rock, early rock called Skiffle um, that emerged in the 1950s, very much inspired by blues and very much inspired by jazz and rock and early rock and roll in, the, in America. And this, of course, is the immediate post-war era. And Skiffle bands really were just these a hodgepodge of people coming together, literally what we think of garage bands now with kids just coming together and plugging their amps in and, you know, pounding on a, on a drum set. They didn't even have that because we're talking about war-torn um, England. But in Liverpool, the skiffle environment really created a lot of opportunity to experiment. It allowed opportunity for the more talented artists to rise up and develop a following. And that's essentially what we saw the Beatles do. And then they began to reestablish themselves as a full-fledged rock band and did a lot of touring, but they had to actually climb up the ladder. They didn't start out on the top. They started at the bottom and it, and it, it personnel changed. So I think the other part is we need to understand that when we're talking about entrepreneurial enterprise and we're talking about value creation, it doesn't just come out in, in an instant. It's, you're not birthed as a fully-fledged entrepreneurial enterprise. There's an awful lot that goes into that. So I take them from their high school years in Liverpool through the Skiffle environment, which was an outcast musical environment. All of the real music was being produced in London, but no one took artists from Liverpool. And uh, in fact, Parlophone Records, which they finally, the Beatles finally signed with, they were the last they were literally the last record company in London to even that they could go to. And they got an audition. They didn't even get a contract. And Parlophone was run by a, someone who would become very famous, George Martin, who was not even known for his production of music. He was classically music trained, but he Parlophone got its name through recording comedy and Peter Sellers. So these are people completely outside the mainstream. And so the, the, the band really had to get this um, rough and tumble experience in Liverpool, really without anybody looking over their shoulder to sort of see what they're doing and really understand who they were as a core. And then they could build on that. And then 
it, the, the career is really quite extraordinary because they begin building on it in each stage through the course of the band's ascendance to what can only be the pinnacle of the pinnacle mm-hmm. um, of pop music success. It, you reminded me, you said there, the way that this emerged from like the, it took these specific people at this specific point in time to have this kind of a thing happen. And I'm reminded of the work of the uh, economic historian, uh, Deirdre McCloskey, where, you know, she's talking about what, what gives us liberal democratic capitalism, right? What gives us people living on less than, uh, you know, $3 a day for really so much of time. And then all of a sudden in the 1700s, really in, in England or perhaps in, in Denmark, it explodes. And it took those people in that period of time um, and a different way of thinking about it. And you talked about the outside, you know, perspective that a lot of people had to do things differently and to think of things differently. So there, to me, I, I hear those parallels of this economic story of how we got the modern world with how we got this revolutionary band out of Liverpool at this one point in time. Yeah, and I, I'm a fan of Deirdre McCloskey's work. Um, I feel fortunate to have met her a couple times and uh, talked to her just casually about it. But I think there's a lot to that. And here's the other thing, which I think a lot of people, and I talk about this in the book quite a bit, markets were crucial to allowing the Beatles to emerge. If elites had been in control, well, elites were in control of music at the time, they didn't see the value of the Beatles at all. They didn't see the value of the music. These were these these four guys with some weird out accents that were all coming from a working class part of England that was heavily bombed uh, during the war. And that, that formed a lot of what they could and could not do at the time just because of lack of economic economic opportunity. But it was their ability for their fans to validate their work in their, in their shows in their concerts, allow them to draw more and more people into different venues that eventually convince the powers that be to actually give them a shot. And even that was very low on the rung. And so all of this, by the way, builds toward what happens with the Sgt. Pepper album, because these are all the outcasts, but the market validated what they were producing. It was demonstrating the value of what they were creating day in and day out. And it was consistent and it was building so that by the time 1966 comes around and they decide to quit touring, one of the biggest labels in the world writes them a blank check. Um, to run the studio because they have the confidence that somehow it's going to pay off and they've created this incredible history of value creation that has been monetized through the market. If the market hadn't monetized, frankly, I don't think the Beatles would have been there. If the market wasn't there to monetize them. Um, And of course, there are hundreds, thousands of bands that didn't make it um, because they didn't create the same level of value with the same kind of drive that the Beatles had. I also think of the idea of uh, specialization and a division of labor and the way you talked about that the band created. I always had a, a friend who told me the story, and I don't know if it's totally apocryphal, but it, it very well could be that you have uh, Paul McCartney in the studio plunking on the piano and you have John Lennon, who's probably uh, you know trying to recover from a hangover, just laying on the floor. And he's saying, you know, it's getting better all the time. And then it's Lennon who just pops in with, can't get no worse. Yeah. 
It's like that complimentary nature that they had um, that you know, Lennon and McCartney wrote songs so well together. And here's where I'll exercise some of my own editorial opinion here. I don't think either of them as solo songwriters were as good as they were together. And uh, interestingly enough, I think it was George Harrison who, when he had like a song on pretty much every album, um, but it's some of the most memorable songs and also had a really great solo career where I think he was probably the more individually complete songwriter. And you had Ringo who had his own specialized role in driving the band. So you have this division of labor. You have this specialization like we see in really effective market economies. Absolutely. And I think that's another thing. Todd Lowry, who is um, who is uh, is an arranger and a musician and was the legal counsel for uh, Hal Leonard uh, Music Publishing, which is one of the biggest. I think they're the biggest music publisher in the world. But he's also uh, followed the Beatles a lot. And one of the things he did, and I quote this in the book, in fact, because I think it's so important to recognize this, but he actually went through the authorship of each one of the Beatles songs and he assigned and he looked at where 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 the each beetle was dominant and if i remember right um only about so about there are 312 or 314 songs depending on how you want to count them um uh that were published by the or published and distributed on a beetles recorded in a recording studio and published on a beetles album only about a dozen of those so were only about a only a few of them were truly joint works of the band. However, that's misleading. Um, what is really happening is they, you see this in the studio, they're going back and they are, they're, they're finishing them. And so one will come in with a core and another one will come in, will come in and actually just add different things. And even George Harrison talks about how he's thinking, no, actually it's Ringo Starr. And he's talking about, um, uh, Octopus's Garden. In fact, he's sort of coming up with these lyrics, and then George Harrison is in the studio at the same time, and then starts hitting certain notes and is giving Ringo um, ideas about how the melody will go. And this is a very collaborative process. And I think that's another thing that I really learned. It was very important. It's, um, it's not clear to me, though each one of them had their own talents, that, their ability, that they could have accomplished the same artistic success independently. And while they were very accomplished when they went solo, when we're looking at the effect of the Beatles, their collaborative work in the studio was huge. And going back to George Harrison... And I think this is a striking statistic. He had 300, when they broke up, when the Beatles broke up in 1970, they had, or 71, they had three, George Harrison had 300 written songs that he, that many of them had been vetted, but were rejected. And some of those became, and so these, this is a guy who's written, so I'd say if, the, if you look at the top 10 uh, Beatles songs or any top 20 list, he's got five of the top in the top 10 or top 20. Um, so his songwriting 
became much better, but he had all of this talent. And by the way, Paul McCartney did. He had hundreds of songs that never made it onto a Beatles album because essentially what they would do is someone would bring a song into the band. And the first thing they would say is, does this sound like anything else that's been done? If there's anything else that's been done, it could be be anything. They're not going to let it go through. It's got to be different. And then the other part is, does it sound good? They didn't care if it fit a convention or not. The question is, does it sound good? So both of those two rules, essentially, which were informal, I don't think they they actually had these rules. You know, we're not going to do anything unless it sounds good or or no one's been done before. But that is essentially the practice that ensured innovation because that meant that no one knew what was going to come out on a Beatles album. But each it was this collaborative exercise and you can see, you can hear it actually in the different studio versions of each of the songs as each one, they experiment with different melodies, different arrangements, different approaches. Sometimes they speed things up. They slow things down. They task George Martin and Jeff Emmerich and other engineers with doing what they think is impossible tasks, but they are able to come through with it. Um, And so that collaborative enterprise is a crucial is crucial to understanding the Beatles' commercial success as well as artistic success. And when they broke up, they didn't have that. But each Beatle was going in a different direction by that time anyway. And so that's just a different story altogether. Well, I, maybe let's get to that story. So you mentioned that in 71, they break up. And I know in the book, uh, you say that the, the Beatles' breakup was inevitable, logical, and rational. Um well, if you're saying in, that it's inevitable, I guess the, the biggest first question would be, are you finally, are we finally letting Yoko Ono off the hook? But <laughs> expand on that. Why was it yeah. inevitable, logical, and rational? Oh, absolutely. Yoko Ono has to be let off the hook. I mean, there's, I don't think anybody who really dives into the research and understanding the dynamics of the Beatles and understand what's going on um, really can honestly say that Yoko Ono was, was the proximate cause. So my, what I think, and this is what my case study, I think reveals. And so, I mean, obviously this is controversial, um, but nevertheless, I think it's pretty well grounded in understanding the dynamics of the Beatle. The the Beatles, we have to remember what was an enterprise. The Beatles was a band. It existed for a particular purpose, and it had a common goal, which was to produce songs that would be representative of the artistic expression of the Beatles as a band, as an entity. And they are growing artistically. They're going, growing in terms of just becoming adults, creating families. Their interests are inevitably going to diverge. So at some point, we have lots of things that can spin off from a company. But at one point, what it came down to is you can only put 24 songs or on an album, or maybe 18, depending on how long they are and how many fragments you have, maybe even a dozen in some cases. You're going to have a lot of creativity that just never gets sees the light of day because... The Beatles as a band restricts what can actually get out. That's why they're actually engaged in solo um, and various solo projects. But at some point, it just says, you know what, this isn't working. Um, I can't, as you know, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, certainly George Harrison, Ringo Starr is more of a performance-based musician as opposed to a writer. So it's a little bit different with Ringo. But they're basically saying, as long as I continue to be part of the Beatles, I cannot grow artistically. And then also, I would argue, you can't grow commercially. Because at some point, 
the, the dynamics just don't continue to produce that that art and that excitement that comes with with their work. So I think it's inevitable. It's uh, anytime you have people that are growing beyond, anytime a company goes beyond the organizational structure in which it was designed, it will start to fail. So there are a reason why we have public corporations, and these are not partnerships, and partnerships are not sole proprietorships. As you become, as your, your, your business grows, your products diversify, your customer base grows, you need different kinds of organizational structures in order to manage that growth. And so I think it was inevitable. They were gonna, and not only that, it would have been really bad if we'd forced them or they had buckled to the label telling them they had to stay in the Beatles because we can look at Paul McCartney's career after the Beatles and my gosh, the creations he's created. I mean, the, 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 the value he has created as an individual solo artist is just amazing and extraordinary. And just the idea that we wouldn't be without that if they we'd kept the Beatles together is something to me that just doesn't make a lot of sense. So inevitable, rational on the part of the Beatles, freeing on the part of the Beatles, and overall pop music is better because we just also unleashed all these other opportunities for other artists to step into that void. And that stepping into that void created a lot of careers and a lot of mega bands. The way that you describe that, it, it makes me think of, and this may be a bit of a strained analogy, but it makes me think of the process of bankruptcy for mm-hmm. corporations, right? So there's this, I've always thought there's this perception around bankruptcy, and I think it's mostly informed by the game Monopoly, that when you go bankrupt, it's everything's gone and it's all over, because that's when the game ends for you. But the process of bankruptcy, it one of two things happens. Either it reforms the business into a better version of itself, that it gets rid of some of the extraneous parts, the debt that it's accrued, that it can't pay off, and it makes the that current business better, or it distributes those parts out to other places in the market that can use them more effectively. And you can think about the four Beatles that way, that it distributed them out as solo artists, and they were more effective at that point in time as solo artists than they could have been if they had stayed together. Yeah. I think um, the, the analogy is strained in only the following way. Bankruptcy usually occurs when the leaders within the company have failed to recognize the, the trends that are driving it into a failed enterprise. The Beatles were never a failed enterprise. They were always a value-creating enterprise that could monetize. What was different was the Beatles understood when it was time to break up. The problem wasn't the Beatles. The problem was everybody looking at the Beatles. All the fans saying, of course, they needed to stay together. Actually, if you, we look at what, how John Lennon is working within this structure, how Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney, I mean, really did his, the most probably of any Beatle to keep it together. Um, and then finally, it just was blowing apart. But they, they, they realized it was time to go. John Lennon was the first. Um, Paul McCartney made it official. That created tension. It was in uh, for it was a very difficult divorce, if you will. Um, but nevertheless, I think it was the each one kind of knew that in their hearts that it was time for it to end, and no one was ready. I, I mean, Paul. I think his personalities just try to keep it together, together, together. But then it took a huge emotional toll on him as an individual, but it was so releasing for George Harrison. It was releasing for Ringo Starr. I mean, we 
Oh, I mean, that's where his creativity in the immediate aftermath was really quite extraordinary. First went out with hits, did some really cool stuff in country music, which was one of his love. I played the part, but I won't need rehearsing. All I have to do is act naturally. And then uh, I, I think it just sort of let a lot of people validate whichever Beatle they thought was the favorite at the time too. So I think, um, again, I, I, I have a lot of respect for the Beatles as creators and sort of understanding, even though they probably could not articulate it at the time what was going on, but they were true to their heart and they were true to what they believed the Beatles were as a band. And while it was kind of messy for them individually, um, I, I give them a lot of credit for continuing and not trying to come back uh, to create an entity of the Beatles when they knew that the art, the artistic value wasn't there any longer. And, um, and of course, unfortunately, John Lennon's death, which was truly tragic um, on every level you can think of, um, made that an impossibility. But nevertheless, um, I think it would have been a tough one for them to come back. What in your understanding of the economics of the story around the Beatles tells you why there hasn't been another band like the Beatles. I mean, I think you, when you truly want to pay a compliment to a band, right, you, you say that they're the Beatles of something, right? right. You know, it went in own individual genre, whereas, you know, the, the Beatles kind of exist over all of that, but there hasn't been another one on the same level. Why not? Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, I have a chapter that try to, tries to dive into that. I began realizing that that's another book in and of itself um, because of the dynamics. But I think it, I think there are a couple of things. And I, one of the things I do is I look, I, you try, I'm a social scientist. So I kind of, I'm always thinking about how do we know, you know, what we're seeing is true. And part of that is finding a similar type of environment. And so I looked for bands that really look like they could have done, accomplished the same the same thing the Beatles were. And then, and there was a lot of creativity in the sixties. I mean, we can't just say that the Beatles were so unique that there's nobody else that was comparing. You can compare them to actually there were several bands. And the question then is, well, what, what kept them from emerging? And frankly, it wasn't because there wasn't a market. The Beatles showed, and then the success of other bands showed there was in fact a market for it. But I do look at the, um, the bands, the two bands that really came out, to me that really suggested that they, that were comparable were the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys. And the Beach Boys got ahead of the curve, ahead of the Beatles. They were actually, they created their own genre or they expanded a genre of uh, pop music called surf music. which was very, very popular. They had hits um, early in the early 60s before the Beatles. And Pet Sounds, um, Brian Wilson's uh, real investment in really trying to push the envelope on artistic creativity and pop music predated Sgt. Pepper. Um, and so if there's a band, I think, that could have done it, it, it the, the Beach Boys could. The interesting thing is the Beach Boys were never truly a band. Uh, I mean, they were a band in the technical sense, right? Because they had all these people that would go perform, but they were they were performers. Brian Wilson was really the only significant artistic contributor to the Beach Boys. And he held that role with an iron grip. Um, and that limited 
in my view, that limited the Beach Boys' ability to really achieve the same level of artistic expression and success that we saw in the Beatles over the same period. The other part of it, um, which I think is sort of fascinating in and of itself, is Brian Wilson's drug use and mental illness. Um, Because once he became compromised by his mental illness, the band itself could not sustain itself beyond just performing what everybody already knew. There was no, it was very difficult to create any new, new um, art that could then be launched in a reliable way so that could be monetized to the market. So uh, to me, that was a good case study for showing the importance of a team. In other words, what we see happening is the, is the Beatles themselves recognize the incredibly important role each one of them played. Other people may have discounted Ringo, but the band did not discount Ringo. They knew that Ringo's drumming was absolutely crucial and they relied on it in order to create the music they did. George Harrison emerged as a stunningly artistic and uh, songwriter and who could just create things that John Lennon and McCartney would just sort of think, wow, where did that come from? We can help. But that's not something we could have done. And of course, John Lennon and Paul McCartney were on their own journeys as well as artists. And but all four of them. And I think it was I think it was Keith Richardson that said one of the reasons the Beatles was successful because they had four front men, um, which is true. If you watch their the video clips of them on stage, each one of them has their own energy and they're in sync. And it's really pretty amazing. But internally, each one is bringing creativity and innovation and a different viewpoint that really enriching the entire experience. The other band is the Rolling Stones. And that is actually really interesting. I saw her today at the reception. Um, I am a blues rock guy. I mean, so this is my this is my genre. This is what I like to do when I put my I'm strumming on my guitar. It's usually to a blues rock of some sort. Um, and so, but what happened was uh, there again. You had personnel changes. There was some instability early on in the band, but it also became clear that um, Keith Richards, Mick Jagger were the two dominant personalities and they were blues rock people they were that's just their groove and they could uh they could create things that were phenomenal and then they became a real stage band as opposed to a studio band and that was great for performance and i don't think rolling i don't think the beatles could compare to the rolling stones when you're talking about performance and blues rock um I, i think the rolling stones clearly um are the better band in the sense of their contributions to pop music. But what the Beatles did is they were able to make contributions in so many different genres. Um, Their songs are packed with over 300 different genres over the course of the recording career. And you also see that progression. A lot of people will talk about the Beatles progression as being a 1962 to 1966, 65, then 67 to 70 or 71. When I actually broke down the Beatles by genre, their songs, the recorded songs, um, I actually found three uh, genres. I mean, three distinct periods. There was the rock part that was when they were performance driven in the very early part. I think if they'd stayed there, the Rolling Stones probably could have eclipsed them, um, probably would have eclipsed them. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you something. I think you'll understand. And I say that something. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold 
But then they went into this experimental phase, which is really 64 to 68, where this is where you're getting all sorts of the really interesting things on rubber, uh, on rubber sole and revolver leading up to Sergeant Pepper, really stuff that doesn't seem weird now, but was really weird in the 1960s. And then they moved back to a more balanced rock experimental phase where the Abbey Road is an extraordinarily polished album. I mean, just incredibly mature album. So they contributed to all sorts of genres and you can find almost anything on a Beatles album somewhere in their trajectory. So it's that breadth and that came from the stability of the band, the recognition that you had four creative people that respected each other and then also adhered to this process, which focused on innovation and also with an eye and ear for whether people would like it and enjoy it, whether customers would monetize it. You're reminding me there of a book I'm currently reading by uh, the music journalist Steve Hayden called uh, This Isn't Happening, which is about uh, the Radiohead album Kid A, which came out in 2000 and what um, in his telling of this it means for the turn of the millennium. But it, it, it's a similar process there. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Radiohead and they grow from being this kind of kind of grungy Britpop, challenger Britpop band, uh, very guitar-driven, and then their big follow-up to OK Computer, which is this revolutionary guitar-driven album, ends up being an electronic album. Mm. And it's like it changed. It's that same process of doing something creative that isn't just, you know, becoming a, a husk of your former self. It's not doing the same thing over and over again and being innovative. And I think that's what sets those bands apart. Absolutely. Um, you, you, you mentioned again with the Rolling Stones, there's, of course, the clear economic tie in we can make as well, which is that Mick Jagger was at uh, the London School of Economics before he joined the Rolling Stones. So mm-hmm. on Earth, too, there's um, the uh, Mick Jagger, the economist, is uh, doing the same work that you're doing looking at. Uh, looking at the Beatles. Um, and then one other thing on just the, the uniqueness of the people, going back to my instrument being the drums, you know, Ringo often gets dismissed and for a lot of reasons that are unfair. But one of the most important, uh, why he made that band uh, as successful as they were in, in his role in it, he's left-handed, but he yeah. plays the drums right-handed. Right. Because that's the more common setup of the drums. So when he goes to play drum fills, he starts them with his dominant hand, which is the left, which is how you get that great sound on uh, Come Together, because he starts it, and it only makes sense if you started with your left hand. A right-handed drummer wouldn't have done that. It would have been a completely different sound and fill and feel. It would have changed it entirely. Shh. 
So I think there's some great anecdotes in there about what made the Beatles uh, so special. So I want to go to some rapid-fire questions before we okay. get to the final one. All right. Um, favorite Beatle? I don't have one anymore, honestly. I, I just don't. I, I just have so much respect for each, for each of them. Uh, I would say that my musical sensibilities are much more Paul McCartney. Um, yeah. Favorite song? Uh, again, uh, having done this, I don't have a favorite song anymore because I find, I, I, this is where I'm an economist. I, I sort of look at the marginal value of mm-hmm. each song. And each one is is different and is adding something new and you know i can go i can say norwegian wood because it was one of my favorite songs growing up Uh, but then, man, I just uh, tomorrow never knows blows my mind in terms of what they were doing in that, that earlier album. And then I look at what hap- what they did with Strawberry Fields Forever. And Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope And then just the majesty of some of the other songs. I, I honestly can say that I can pick up I don't have a favorite anymore. I wish I, I I did before (laughs) I did the research, but now I'm like, and now I can see the artistry in where each one is in adding some innovation, you know, and, you know, it's a blues rock guy, you know, uh, it's, you know, I love the, the hard driving rock. I love revolution in all its forms. Sorry, I'm, I'm probably screwing up the, que- the answers here. That's <laughs> yeah. totally fine. Um, all right, so let, final question. A hundred or a thousand years from now, how will we remember the Beatles? What's the most important thing that we'll remember about this band uh, as you see it through the research you did in looking at the Beatles and economics? Yeah, we're going to look at the Beatles as the band that changed everything. Um, we're, we're going to look at them in pop music the same way we might looking in philosophy. We might be looking at Plato or Aristotle. Um, they, these are, these are just these, the, the, there, it is enduring. And I think I didn't fully understand that until I started talking to my students. So I'm a baby boomer. So I am not, I'm not a millennial. I'm definitely not in Gen Z, but I'm teaching Gen Z. And then when the, I have my Gen Z students coming and saying, 
and they find out I wrote a book on the Beatles and say, I love the Beatles. I'm knowing at that point that there is something enduring here. And it's not just because mom and dad. In fact, there's a there's an interesting cover band. Well, it's not they're not, they do a lot of original work. They're out of England called the Mona Lisa Twins. And um I think when I was writing the book, I discovered the Mona Lisa twins, two young women uh, in their 20s, uh, just and they had picked up on the Beatles and they started doing covers and they their harmonies are just so on target, but they're bringing their own flavor to it. And when I'm listening to them, I know I'm listening to a Beatles song, but I'm also li- listening to a new generation's interpretation of the Beatles song while also keeping its spirit of the song itself, keeping its soul. And I think more than anything, just listening to them and their covers, looking at them doing live in the Cavern Club in Liverpool, um, I began realizing this is a multi-generational impact. This isn't just nostalgia on the part of Sam Staley. There's something, and I would like to think my book does a long, goes a long way to try and establish why that's true and why it will happen. But I also have to be aware, but I, but I honestly now don't think we can underestimate their impact. And so many things that are standard now, which were innovate, were literally cutting edge and outside the box in the 1960s. Um, I think that's just going to endure. And I think if pop music is around uh, and they're doing histories of pop music, there's going to be some Beatles song in, in that repertoire, in that history book that encapsulates the entire cultural revolution that happened in that decade in which the Beatles were existing. And, um, and I think, yeah, there are lots of other players, not just the four, but um, I think they're going to be around and earned well-earned. Samuel Staley is director of the DeVoe L. Moore center in the college of social sciences and public policy at Florida state university and author of the book, the Beatles and economics, which was published in March, 2020. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combe.